0: Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. Yeah, so to celebrate the week after Easter, I'm going to be sharing about something a little bit different. I'm actually going to be teaching a little bit of apologetics for the empty tomb um, and talking a bit about the resurrection and faith and what faith is. And so it's a little bit different, but I'm hoping that we'll enjoy it this morning. And so... um, who here likes watching movies? I like movies, yeah? Do you ever watch movies with people and there's, always, there's like that annoying person in the room, and you might be that annoying person, I sometimes am that annoying person, who is like, that's so unrealistic, that's so stupid, as if they would not notice blah, 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 and they're like always picking out the things that are unrealistic in a movie. Does, ever, does anyone know someone like that? Have a yeah? Who is that person? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I feel like a lot of movies are like this. Like one that comes to the top of my head is Despicable Me. So you're watching Despicable Me, right? And this like sketchy looking guy walks into an adoption agency and is like, I want to adopt children. And she's like, sure, here's three children. And it's like, that's ridiculous. That's not how adoption works. And then he goes to a carnival and like explodes a side stand, and nobody notices or says anything and they just wander off. And then... Um, he gets shot with like a million rockets and he's fine. And then this guy eats a cookie that's actually a robot and he doesn't notice and just eats it as though it's a cookie. And the whole time you're watching this movie, right? The main point is that you have to suspend belief. You have to pretend to believe what you know isn't really true and you don't mind because it's funny and. It's entertaining, and that's the point. And most movies we watch are like this. Netflix just put out a Christian musical about a youth camp. Does any, does anybody, has anybody seen it? It's called A Week Away. I have to admit, it was dreadful, but I so loved it. It's terrible, but I just love it. And um, even that movie, like as a youth pastor, I'm watching it like there are two adults at this camp with 100 children. And then a kid runs away, and the leader of the camp is like, oh, no worries do you want me to look for him? And I'm like, oh my gosh, can you imagine what I'd be doing if someone told me that? And they're all playing paintball. What is the budget for this youth camp, might I ask? And you're just watching it and you have to suspend belief, but you don't care because it's entertaining and it's fun. We do that a lot in life, but I think that sometimes people think that that's what faith is. That faith is pretending to believe what we know isn't true. Suspending our reason, suspending our rationality and pretending to believe something that we know isn't reasonable or we know isn't true. It's like the, it doesn't make sense, but just believe sort of attitude. I just, I, I th- I, what I want to speak about this morning is that the Christian faith is not dependent on you giving up your reason or pretending to believe in things that you know are impossible. That is not what faith is. That is not what the Christian faith is. That might be something, but that's not Christianity. <laughs> That is not the faith that the New Testament writers were speaking about. That is not the claims that they made. I want to read out 1 John 1, verses 1 to 3. John says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us." We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What is John saying? We actually saw this. I looked at it. I saw it with my eyes. I touched it. I saw Jesus. I'm telling you about something that really happened. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8 and then verse 11. He says, "For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas Peter and then to the 12. After that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So most who are still alive now, but some have died." When Paul wrote this letter, Not right now, obviously. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is what we preach. And this is what you believed. The Bible is not asking us for blind faith. That is not the claim that Christianity makes. That is not the claim that the apostles are making. They're saying, we saw this we have evidence of this, that a man named Jesus walked on this earth. He did miracles that nobody else could do. He died and then he raised from the dead and we saw him raised from the dead. That is the central claim of Christianity. He appealed to their reason and to evidence and that is extremely important. Christianity is a faith that is inherently historical in nature. If you look at something like Marxism, so Karl Marx, was the guy who wrote Marxism. And basically he sat down and he wrote an ideology of the way that he thought the world worked and the way he thought the world should operate. And I think sometimes we think that Christianity is like that. It's one idea amongst many about the way the world works and the way the world should be. Partly, I suppose that's true, but that's not the central point. The central point is that as Christians, we believe that God intervened in history came to earth as a man, died on a cross, went through a Roman crucifixion. We have the name of the guy who oversaw his crucifixion. We have all this historical evidence about who he was, the leaders at the time, all of this, that he died and that he rose again. The central claim of Christianity is historical and it always has been. If you even look at the Old Testament, when God was speaking to the Israelites, what He kept saying to them is, I am the God who rescued you from slavery. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Even in the Old Testament, God... His claims about who he is are based on his activity in the world, on his intervention in history. Because it's not every day that a million slaves just wander out of the greatest world power in the world at the time. He's saying, I did this for you. I brought you out of slavery. That is how you can know who I am. Christianity is a faith that is inherently historical in nature. It makes claims about things that we believe really Happened. It's not just a random ideology. It's we believe this happened, and therefore this is what we think of that and why that happened. And that's why I am so passionate about church history, it's because it affirms the historical nature of the Christian faith. God did things in history in the Bible, and God continues to do things in history. Now, not that everything that's happened in church history is something that God wanted, obviously, because that's insane. There's lots of terrible things in church history. But it's the idea that God has continued to work in history and continued to sustain His church. And so, like I said at the start, I want to teach a bit of apologetics for the resurrection. So if you don't know what apologetics is, it's like the defense of the faith. It's reasons to believe that something is real or true. And um, this is something that you might be super familiar with. So if you are, I ask that you bear with me, or this might be something that you've never heard before, or maybe you don't even know much about Christianity at all. But whoever you are, I'm hoping that this will be um, at least interesting, if nothing else. This isn't something obviously I came up with. This is common apologetics for the empty tomb, but I thought it would be a really great thing to talk about off the back of Easter. Why do we actually believe that this thing happened? Because that's the main point, right? Paul says if Jesus didn't really die and rise again, then we are to be pitied of all people because what we believe is useless. So how can we know? How can we have confidence in this? Firstly, there is extremely strong evidence, almost, I would say almost undeniable evidence for the evidence of an empty tomb. That tomb on that Sunday morning was empty. And we have to look at why and some possible explanations, and I'll get to that. But firstly, I want to explain why we can be so confident that that tomb on that Sunday morning, when the women showed up, was empty. Number one, nobody could produce a body. Nobody could find the body of Jesus, and you can bet they were looking for it. A bunch of Jews, Jesus' followers, who had been completely subdued when Jesus died on the cross. They cowered in a room. They denied their faith. They were terrified. They ran away. They weren't even at the cross except for John. All of a sudden, are walking around com- claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. They're turning the world upside down. They're making a humongous fuss, making outrageous claims. This looked bad for the Romans who thought they killed him and for the Jewish leaders who thought they killed him and also didn't want him to be taking their place of leadership. Everybody would have wanted to find the body. Nobody could find the body. If they went to the wrong tomb, somebody would have been like, you dummies, it was this tomb. Here's Jesus' body. Look, he's dead. Nobody could do that. Nobody could go find his body somewhere and prove it. Nobody could find the body or prove that the, tr- the tomb was wrong. And the claims about Jesus' resurrection came from the very city where he died. It's not like, way over in Rome, somebody was like, hey, I have a funny idea. Maybe Jesus rose from the dead. There's no social media. There wasn't even carrier pigeons, probably. I don't know when they were invented. Um, So like there's no way of communicating that. So you can just spread this around Rome and nobody can prove it's not true because I don't know, it's over in Jerusalem and it's gonna take us like a couple months to walk there and find out. So I don't know, maybe it happened. It's not like that. It was in Jerusalem, the very city where his body would have been. That is where they were looking for it and nobody could find it. Number two, there were claims that were spread that the body was stolen. So in Matthew 28, it says, some of the guards, the guards were meant to be guarding the tomb, because like, it's embarrassing for them, right? Your one job is to stand in front of this tomb and guard a dead guy, and you can't, like, the dead guy's gone, like, That's a bummer. Like, that makes you feel bad about your job, probably. So they went into the city and told the chief priest everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. So this is something that Matthew said. But what is so interesting is that other historical records written by Romans, even up to a few hundred years later, tell this exact same story. So Justin Martyr, he, wrote, he writes this of Jesus. He write, like this is not the Bible. This is another historical source. writes, His disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when he was unfastened from the cross. And now they deceive men by asserting that he was risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. And then another historian named Tertullian in the year 200. So this is 170 years later, almost. Still said the same thing. What he said I thought was funny. He said, this is who his disciples secretly stole away. So Jesus is the one who his disciples secretly stole away, that it might be said that he had risen again. Or the gardener abstracted that his lettuces might come to no harm from the crowds of visitors. So his idea is either the disciples stole it away or the gardener thought that all these people were gonna come and visit and ruin his lettuces. I don't know, his plants or something. And so he, <laughs> t- he got rid of Jesus' body so that nobody would come and visit the tomb, which I think is a dreadful argument because they would still be interested to see an empty tomb. So I'm going to say that's not a very good argument. But basically the fact that this story was still being circulated hundreds, like up to a, over a hundred years later and that historians were writing about it proves that this rumor was spread and was talked about. And once again, why would you have to spread this rumor if there was a tomb with a body in it, Right? So so the tomb was empty. We, We can be pretty sure that the tomb was empty. Now that doesn't prove the resurrection, but we have to come up with what is an explanation for why on that Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. The last thing that helps us know that the tomb was probably empty is that in the New Testament, the evidence for the empty tomb is given first by who? By women. And as awful as it is, in our day, and I think it was awful then as well, women were not considered a credible witness at all. They basically were seen as intellectually and morally bankrupt. And so if they said they saw something, it, you couldn't even count it in a court of law, which is terrible, obviously. But that is how things were seen in their days. And so if they were there to make up a really credible, like a really credible story about Jesus um, being risen from the dead, they would have put Peter or John as the first evidence the first people to see Him raised from the dead, someone who was authoritative and a man and all of this, they told the true story, even though in the worldview of the time, it would have been harmful to their argument that women were the first ones who saw the resurrection. And so that is another argument that helps us prove that the tomb was empty on that morning. Okay, so how, how, So what do we do with that then? The tomb was empty, now what? So we're going to look at some proofs that the empty tomb was due to the resurrection. So number one, there's convincing evidence that Jesus really died. So one argument might be, Jesus didn't really die. He just was in a coma and they thought he was dead and that's why he was alive again. There's pretty convincing evidence that he was really dead. If you look at the story of what he went through and the whipping and the beating and the carrying the cross and all of that, that alone is ridiculous, let alone being crucified. And then... The soldiers, there's a story, I can't remember which of the Gospels it's in, but they go along to all of the three men who are being crucified, and the two other men weren't dead. So they broke their legs so that they would die more quickly. But when they came to Jesus, they knew he was dead. These guys were experts in death. Their literal job was to kill people. That was their job. They were experts in death. They looked at Jesus and they said, this man is dead. And to make sure... They stabbed his side and blood and water poured out. It notes that, that blood and water poured out. Now, that isn't a medical thing that they would have been able to explain in the first century. Like, they don't know what that meant. But now, with modic- modern medical science, there's a few possible explanations for why blood and water would have poured out. One of the reasons is that um, his, the, that the um, liquid, the fluid would have surrounded his lungs because he was on the cross and he couldn't breathe. And it meant that this asphyxiation would have meant that there was water buildup around his lungs. And so that's why blood and water would have poured out when he was on the cross. So there's pretty convincing evidence that he really died. So that he was in a coma is like, that's very unlikely. Number two, proof of the resurrection. The empty tomb did not look like the scene of a theft. Firstly, to get into the tomb would have been extremely difficult. There was Roman guards there protecting it. But number two, when they went and looked at the tomb, all the grave clothes were there and the face cloth was folded up. So to believe that somebody robbed this tomb, they would have had to first get past the guards, then move this stone, then go into the tomb, get the dead body, unwrap the dead body so that they're carrying just an empty, like a naked dead body, leave all the wrappings there, take his face cloth, Neatly folded up and leave it there, and then walk out with the dead body, which is extremely unlikely if you are in a rushed situation trying to steal a body. Right? That's like a, would be a super weird thing to do. And so, it's extremely unlikely that somebody in the situation where they were stealing a dead body would have done that. The grave clothes were there. The face cloth was folded. It's extremely unlikely that somebody would have stolen it. So, I think we, I, I think we can possibly rule that one out. Number three proof of the resurrection is the disciples are portrayed in the New Testament as being surprised and unbelieving about the resurrection. What would have been an awesome story is if Jesus died and His disciples went around being like, you guys, don't worry, no big deal. He's going to be back. We believe it. He told us He was going to die and rise again. He will be back in three days. Chill out. It's no big deal. We will be proved right. But that isn't what they did at all, right? They were terrified. They thought it was all over. You know, if you read the New Testament, sometimes it can make you be like, gosh, these guys were dull because you read it and Jesus says over and over and over again, I'm going to die and then I'm going to be raised to life. And they just didn't get it, right? So the, the New Testament actually makes the disciples look silly in a sense, which is basically, I think, proof that, it, it, I think it lends to proof that this is a true story, right? Because if, if they wanted to make themselves look good, they would not have portrayed themselves the way that they did, And if they were going to steal his body and pretend that he rose from the dead, they would not have portrayed themselves the way that they did and the way it was written. All right, number four, proof of the resurrection. It is impossible for so many people to see the same hallucination. That's one of the arguments that people give is that, oh, it was just a hallucination. They were all seeing a hallucination or hypnosis or something like that. And that's how they saw Jesus. It says in that passage we read earlier that he appeared to up to 500 people at the same time. That's impossible. You can't have 500 people having the same hallucination, especially not people who did not really think Jesus would rise from the dead. It wasn't like they were expecting it. They were surprised and it was an unexpected thing for them. So it's basically impossible that they would have seen a hallucination like that. All right, number five, proof of the resurrection. Paul wrote about the resurrection with living witnesses around. So if Paul had written that passage... In 1 Corinthians saying, look, Jesus rose from the dead. All these people saw it and they're still alive. That would be an absolutely audacious thing to do if he made it up, right? If everybody was like, nope, no one's seen him. I don't know what you're talking about. There were living witnesses around at the time that these things were being written in the epistles, in the letters. It'd be a crazy thing to make that up if there was people if, if, and to say these people saw him and then they could be like, no, he didn't. Like you, that's not real. So he claimed that while they were still alive. Um, Number six, this is kind of a minor one, but it's an interesting one, is that the day of worship for Christians changed. The day of worship for Jews is Saturday. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Christians started worshiping and having their services on Sunday. And that is because, as we read, it's because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so it was a strange, random thing to do to just change the day you start worshiping. And they did. And so that was one of the proofs of the resurrection. And the last one, I'm sure there's plenty more, but the last one I'll mention is the boldness of the disciples after the resurrection. Like I've already mentioned, the New Testament and the Gospels don't present a super courageous, brave view of the disciples, right? It shows them weak and doubting and not getting it even after they've been told again and again and again. It shows Peter denying Jesus three times, once to a little girl because he's so scared of what was going to happen to him because he's been friends with Jesus and Jesus has been arrested. And yet, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he is... Bold. He is preaching in the square. He is doing this huge sermon, making these bold claims, seeing thousands of people come to God. And all the disciples did that. All the disciples died, most of them. All of them, I think, except John, died a brutal death for claiming to believe this. And this was not a group of brave men before. That is not the way they're portrayed in this story. And I think that's significant. There was a significant change. Something happened that gave them courage that they did not otherwise have so this evidence i think must be reckoned with the tomb was empty why and if you are a christian i want to encourage you it is i think the most logical explanation or at least perfectly reasonable to believe that jesus rose from the dead just based on this historical evidence the facts complicated. It's not the kind of thing that can be easily explained away. What happened in this situation? The empty tomb, the grave clothes being there, all these things. And so I mentioned at the start that faith is not about suspending belief. It's not about pretending to believe something you don't really believe. So what is faith? And there is a lot to faith. I'm not necessarily going to be speaking about all elements of faith. I just want to speak about one particular element of faith because I think it's really important. So the Greek word for faith in the New Testament is the word pistis. It is similar to the word believe. And this word means to be persuaded, to believe something, or to have a conviction of truth. It is not an airy, fairy, fluffy word like, I believe in fairies or whatever it is. It's not just like a fluffy sort of word. It's a conviction word. I believe this is true. I have a conviction of truth. I've been persuaded... Of this, It doesn't ask us to suspend belief. It asks us to be persuaded of something and to commit to that. And I love, love, love the way that C.S. Lewis writes about faith in the book, *Mere Christianity. So I want to read this passage. It's not super long, but I think it is worth it because it has so, so helped me understand what biblical faith looks like. So it says, I think it should be on the screen for you. Now, faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word... Is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train in the habit of faith. Faith is a practice of continuing to believe what I've once believed is true in spite of my changing moods. We are not as reasonable of creatures as we believe we are. C.S. Lewis gives the example of somebody going in for surgery. And you can know in your head, the person putting me under anesthetic isn't gonna smother me. They're not gonna start cutting me open while I'm still awake. But in that moment, as you're going into surgery, that panic might rise in you, and you know it's unreasonable, but it's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And we do that all the time. We might believe, no things are reasonably true, but our, our moods don't always align with what we know to be reasonably true. He also, t- also talks about a little kid learning to swim. This little kid might've seen hundreds of people swim before, but when you put him in the pool and he doesn't know what to do, swimming is impossible, this is impossible, I'm gonna drown, nobody ever can swim. Ah. Our, our moods do not always align with what we rationally believe to be true. We're always going to have moods in which we doubt. So what do we do with that? What do we do when we doubt? And I, so what C.S. Lewis makes a really good case. He says, if you, a good point, sorry. He says, if some reasonable and rational explanation comes to you that makes you question faith, that's a different thing. That's something that you need to sit down and reason through and talk through and get good wisdom on. But most of the time, the things that call us away from our faith, the things that cause us to doubt, aren't that. Most of the time, it's changing moods. Most of the time, it's changing feelings. Most people who drift away from faith don't, not, I'm not saying this doesn't happen, it definitely does, but I would not say it's the majority of people have some stellar explanation for why they've decided that Christianity isn't true. Most people drift. Drift away, slowly. Faith is the practice of continuing to believe what we have once believed is true, decided was true in spite of our changing emotions. If I could get the keys up, that would be wonderful. Thank you. So when the enemy comes and says to us, this is all terribly stupid, how can you believe in God? That happens to everybody. If you have never doubted your faith before, It'll happen, I'm pretty sure. I think most people do. I think it's a common part of life. And if we don't um, think it's safe to doubt faith, if we think that if we have doubts and struggles, then that means it's wrong and that means we're alone and nobody's ever felt like that before, then we're gonna be really vulnerable. I wanna tell you, everybody has moments like that. Everybody has moments where they're like, oh my gosh, maybe God isn't even real. Maybe I'm crazy. What are we talking about here? That is normal, right? (laughs) Right, am I the only one? Yeah, okay, thank you, thank you. So we actually need to do a few things when that happens. Number one, we need to remember what we once believed is true. And this proof for the empty tomb is just one. Apologetics is a really rich field. And if maybe this is something that you're interested in, that you want to pursue. Apologetics is amazing. There's so many defenses of the faith and proofs of the faith. This book that I read from, *Me, Christianity, is like a philosophical defense of the faith. And it's wonderful. It's based on morals and ethics. And it's really, really interesting. There are plenty of reasonable reasons to believe in faith. And so when we struggle with doubt, one of the tools we can use is to remind ourselves of what we believe is true and why we believe it's true. To not let our moods lie to us. We remember the empty tomb. And we say to the enemy, all right, enemy, you're saying things to me, but there was an empty tomb. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? I think I know what happened there. And we can, we can stand, that we can have certain things that even in moments of doubt, we come back to. I'm gonna stand on this. I'm gonna come back to this. When we are suffering and it feels like God is far away, we can remember times in the past where God has come through for us. Like I said, our faith is historical in nature. We can remember our own personal history. We can feel like God's far away, but I know that there's been times when I've experienced God. So I'm gonna stand in confidence on that. I am not going to go walk away based on my changing moods. When it becomes inconvenient to believe, when it would be much more convenient if God did not ask so much of us, when it would be much more convenient to lie or to cheat or to steal, when it would be much more, and I think that that's half the reason that we doubt is because it's inconvenient to believe this sometimes. Sometimes it's wonderful and comforting, but sometimes it's incredibly inconvenient. It'd be much easier if you could just do what you wanted to do, right? I mean, not ultimately, but that's how it feels sometimes, yeah? We need to trust what our rational selves once believed is true, not what our tempted selves wish was true. This happens to all of us. Faith isn't just feeling. Faith is partly something we do with our will. We choose to believe what we, want, what, what we believe is true and we remind ourselves of it. And one of the ways we do that is through daily Bible reading, through listening to great podcasts. We need to remind ourselves of what we believe is true. Remind ourselves of it, remind ourselves of it, remind ourselves of it because the enemy in the world would like us to not believe it's true. It's challenging to them as well. And some of them probably would like to believe it's true in the world. I shouldn't say that nobody does. But um, we also can evangelize better if we have good defenses for our faith. If we can explain why this actually makes sense. I was, on, um, I was in the audience of Q&A on Thursday night and Martin Niles <laughs> was um, speaking on the panel. He's the leader of the Australian Christian Lobby. And when they announced that Martin Niles was going to be on the speaking on Q&A, the comments on Twitter below it were things like, anyone who believes in God is an idiot and has no place in public square because how could you be so stupid? Like people feel like that, right? And we need to have defences for why we believe what we believe because it's there. It is there. Our faith is reasonable and rational. God does not ask us to do what we do when we watch Despicable Me when we're reading the Bible. That's not what he asks of us. That's not the claims that the New Testament authors were making. They were saying, this happened. What are you going to do about it? Jesus rose from the dead. That changes everything. What are we going to do about it? We need to continually bring before our minds what we believe and why we believe it. So I'm going to finish with just an opportunity. If you don't know God, if if you have maybe even been convinced, maybe this is something I need to reconsider. Maybe there was an empty tomb. Maybe this does have implications for my life if God was raised from the dead. I want to encourage you that God loves you. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is really alive, that He left that tomb, that He walked out of it because He is God. And Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins, to receive forgiveness, and to be in relationship with Him. That's what He extends to us. That's what He offers us is relationship with Him, with Him as our Lord and with Him as our Savior. So I encourage everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads. And this morning, if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, if you, or maybe you've walked away, you've had moods that have caused you to wander off, but you want to decide that today is the day I want to choose to have faith. I want to believe this and not be shaken by changing emotions. I want to encourage you to raise your hand right now if that's a decision that you want to make. If you want to know God, if you want to be in relationship with Him, He loves you. He loves you. He wants to be close to you. And if you this morning are struggling with doubt, I would really love to pray for you. Let's all, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for that. Let's just all pray together. I'm sure we all struggle with it on some measure, but if you are really struggling with it, I'm praying for you extra right now. God, God, we thank you that, what you, are, that, that, that you came, that you died, that the tomb was empty on Sunday morning. God, we thank you that you rose again. God, I pray that you would help us to have faith. We pray like that man in the, with the son who was suffering. He says, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And God, that's our prayer this morning. Lord, we believe, but help us with our unbelief. Help us when we doubt. Help us when it's inconvenient to believe this, Lord God. Help us to have conviction to walk in what we believe is true in spite of our changing emotions, Lord God. God, for anybody who is really wrestling with doubt right now, I pray that You would make Yourself so real in their lives that they would be like Jacob, that then they would find that in their wrestling, they're actually wrestling with You. God, I pray that they would, You would make Yourself so apparent to them that they wouldn't have to walk in doubt any longer. And God, we bring You the praise and the glory. We are so grateful that You are alive. We thank You that we can walk in light of that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. So if you made that decision for the first time, or if you'd like to make a decision to know Jesus, if you're struggling with doubt, whatever it is, we would love to chat with you more about it. If you, like, are interested but want to know more information, I encourage you to head to the Next Steps Lounge after the service. There's a team of people there who would love to chat with you more about it. Um, But for everybody, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, It's been lovely to worship with you and share the service with you. We have um, tea and coffee out in the courtyard and